Well, if it's your first time visiting or just somewhat new, uh, I've been here about, what, about six months now, and there's a common phrase uh, that we like to use around here that we've heard for the last six months. That has never happened before. And with the music, that's the first time that's ever happened before. So sorry about that. Uh, but uh, yes, anyway, uh, the goodness of Jesus. So if you continue to join us, you will get used to that phrase. That has never happened before. So uh, all right. We uh, apologize for not sending out an email this week on the passage I'll be preaching through. Uh, we are actually going to... Uh, finish the book of Philippians today, uh, verses 10 through 23, though it'll be more verse 10 and then picking up in 14 through 23. Um, the title of the sermon today is The Treasury of Christ. Let me open up here for Philippians 4, 10 through 23. The Apostle Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Because once again, you have renewed your concern for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment, and more, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, God, as we open up your word, in, in the divinely inspired letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. God, and as we would be coming to, uh, as we're concluding this series uh, to the Philippians, Lord, God, I pray that, that this morning we would respond to your word and we would understand your word. God, that you would work it through our minds and our hearts. So as Jordan said, we would be ambassadors for Christ Jesus. Lord of heaven and earth, and we ask this to your glory, as glory does belong to you. Lord, use us as vessels for your glory. Amen. Whoops. Sorry. 
The end of the letter here truly represents the genuine loving relationship between the Philippian church and the Apostle Paul. Uh, To quote one of our members, how wonderful it is when both parties feel like they got the best end of the deal. Paul and the Philippians both got the best end of the deal. Paul got a church who helped him out financially in the beginning of the gospel and his gospel ministry when no other churches in Macedonia had started contributing yet, as well as they continued support throughout his entire ministry. And on the other hand, the Philippian church got the Apostle Paul. Imagine if there was a Facebook or social media post, hey, who's preaching today? The Apostle Paul's coming. A man who deeply cared for them, who they They could trust to teach them about Jesus, as well as they could trust Paul as a Christ-like template to be imitated. I can tell you from personal experience, if if you've never experienced the other uh, end of the spectrum, i.e. as a dysfunctional church, trust me when I say there is nothing sweeter than a healthy church. A healthy church has a group of believers who are devoted to Christ and one another. A healthy church has godly examples that the congregation can trust and follow, who who are completely confident in their leaders because they know their leaders obey and follow Christ. A healthy church is united in all things in the Lord. We don't need uniformity, but the Bible does call us to unity and unity in the Lord. Loved ones, one, one of the greatest riches you can ever experience from the treasury of Christ is a Christ-centered, gospel-preaching, united, charitable, generous body of Christ. And that is only a product of God's grace. When you find a church such as that, make it a priority. That is a church that you want to commit yourself and your family to. I'm a little off topic here, but... We're going to specifically uh, today take a deeper look into the grace of God through the generosity toward his people. I guess the prior point was that a healthy church is a generous church. And it's a means of grace that God uses to further his kingdom. Now technically, we will do one more sermon in Philippians. One more sermon. (laughs) One more sermon in Philippians in two weeks. Jacob will preach next week, and then we will look at the work and persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from the letter of Philippians. I've never done anything like that before, but one of my friends who is a pastor in Ohio just did that after he completed the Gospel of Mark, and I really like that idea, so we're going to give it a shot. If it's no good, just blame him. 
for today, we're going to start with God's grace through the generosity of the Philippian church toward the Apostle Paul, and then we'll conclude with God's bounty toward us from the treasury of Christ. somewhat backwards. Point one, the grace of our Lord Jesus, verse 23. Paul concludes the letter with the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. I want to begin with the last verse simply because it may be wise to begin by defining the grace of God or even grace. At its most basic definition, grace means unmerited favor. In other words, grace is receiving what we didn't earn and what we do not deserve. It's unmerited favor. Imagine if we all went out to celebrate Mother's Day today after service and just pick a restaurant in Leavenworth and uh, whatever the size of that bill would be, that would be a large bill today. And you can imagine someone just coming by and saying, hey, I've got this covered today. I'm going to buy your hors d'oeuvres. I'm going to buy your lunch. I'm going to buy your desserts and your drinks. It's all covered. You don't have to pay any of it. I'm covering the complete expense. That is an illustration of grace. front of the line, the paramount place, we see that grace and the grace of God in action is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is where God bestowed his forgiveness upon defiant sinners who were undeserving of his love. It is where the Son of God, who assumed flesh, became human in order to take our place on the cross, who faced the wrath of God for us. It's where the innocent died for the guilty. That is grace. Jesus came to our lunch table and said, I've got this one. I'm paying the entire bill with my blood. That is the grace of God. And he paid for our sins with his blood. If we believe that, none of us have to pay our own debt. Grace is the reality that the creator of heaven and earth chose to save you based on his determination alone. Without any influence from us whatsoever. His saving grace should, should lead us to marvel at the actuality that the infinite, eternal Son of God came down from heaven to bleed for our transgressions. And his choice to do so was on no account on what we've done or what we would ever do. He based his decision to save us solely because our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Let 
marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. So that's grace, at least regarding our salvation. But in the treasury of Christ, grace is in unlimited supply. And one of the ways that we see that on display, one of the ways that we see the grace of God on display is through the generosity of the church. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you have renewed your concern for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's there in the text. One of the principal ways God uses his church to love one another is through our giving. It's not the only way, but it is a primary way. And while we may not like to hear sermons about money and about giving, that doesn't negate the command that we as a church are called to contribute to the needs of others, especially within the household of God. And Paul wrote to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, Sunday is the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now I realize part of the uncertainty of giving is the misuse or even abuse regarding how offerings are used by some churches. I'm not saying that's anyone's view in our church. But it's a common view and it's, I think it's a fair view. Monies are misused. They are abused. But I, I think there's a few items Paul makes clear in this passage that may at least help settle some of the skepticism about giving. First, the purpose the Philippians gave to Paul was centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul didn't go to Philippi in Acts 16 and sell them on a get-rich-quick scheme. He wasn't a charlatan like a TV evangelist who who, uh, preys on people 
by convincing them that God will bless them five or seven or tenfold if they just send money into that ministry. The money the Philippians contributed was to support the evangelistic mission of Paul. They knew where the money was going, and so they were eager to give. That's what the text says. They were eager to give. They were zealous to invest their earthly wealth for the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. So they gave. They gave money. They sent gifts. If you read Acts, they even invited him over for meals while he was in Philippi. Because they knew that Paul was God's vessel to advance the gospel that saved them. And from their dedication toward him in this passage, we can see the Philippian church was a means of grace that God gave to the Apostle Paul. That shouldn't go unobserved. The Philippian church was a means of grace from God to the Apostle. It's hard to remember that our heroes of the faith, they need our help and our encouragement just like we do. I'm reminded of one of my professors who told us a story in class of a student one time who who told the professor that he would be terrified to preach in front of him. And the professor said to the class, well, I don't know why. I need encouragement just as much as you do. I need reminded of the gospel just as much as all of you do. I wasn't the student who said that, but I was definitely a student who was terrified to preach in front of that professor. I still would be. But he was right. No matter who you are, no matter if you're an apostle or make coffee, no matter if you're a pastor or a door greeter, no matter if you go to conferences all over America to preach, or you just meet for a Bible study in the local church, you don't become an exception to the lifelines of Christianity. Even the Apostle Paul needed reminded of the gospel. The Apostle Paul needed encouraged by his friends. He needed help from local churches and supported by their generosity to fulfill his ministry. This is our call to respond. Because the generosity of the local church to advance the gospel still applies today. Our giving is a means of God's grace in order to complete his will. Maybe I should have said this earlier, but by no means is, is this point or sermon meant to guilt trip anyone into giving. Giving is never meant to be done in guilt. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. 
And we see that they were eager. The Philippians were eager to help out Paul. He said, you lacked an opportunity to give and you still sent gifts. And then he says that it was a fragrant offering, accepting and pleasing to God. Why? Because it was cheerful giving. It wasn't reluctant. It wasn't under compulsion. They loved the Apostle Paul, and they loved Jesus Christ, and they wanted to further his kingdom. And giving to help Paul go across the known earth was a way to complete that. They were just looking for an occasion to bless their dear friend. And how comforting that must have been to Paul. To know no matter where God called him, whether it was in Rome or Ephesus, Galatia or Caesarea, if he was called to preach to the Jews or preach to the Gentiles, he had the local church of Philippi constantly thinking up ways how they could help their friend prosper in his ministry. I don't know what it's like to be a full-time missionary in need. Jordan told us today we're praying for someone who's considering that. What a comfort it must be to someone that, that depends on the church is giving for their role in furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a comfort it must be to know when a, when a church calls them and says, hey, we've got your debt. By the way, that point's not tied into the sermon. That's just a point because he told us about her today. But Paul, that had to be a comfort to Paul. And, and, and the church of Philippi had already come to understand what Paul told the Corinthians further in 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 13. He said, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and will praise God for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Paul, said, Paul says to the Corinthians here, when the local church gives generously, God is worshipped by multitudes. And so Paul could say earlier in 2 Corinthians, guilt is not the incentive for giving. Worship is. Final point. Sorry, it's a weird transition into the third point. I didn't have a good transition there to just smooth into it, so we'll get into the final point now. The grace of God through the treasury of Christ Jesus. Verse 19. Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is a tough verse. It's a tough verse to understand because what is Paul referring to? 
when he says God will supply every one of your needs? Is he referring to anything we think we need? Is he referring to physical and material needs? Or is he only referring to our spiritual needs? Or the combination? Now, furthermore, what does Paul mean when he says God will supply them according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? Well, I think it's first... I think it's fair to say that that God does and will provide material and physical needs. Uh, Jesus tells us that in the Gospels. He says, our Heavenly Father knows what we need even before we ask. And he, he follows up that point with, don't worry about those things. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear. The Lord knows what you need. He'll take care of those. What is his point? Instead, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, and the rest shall be added. I don't don't think what Paul is referring to here is just telling the Philippians that God will supply every single material and physical need, or at least that they think they need. I don't think Paul is referring to that if... If we reduced it down to only material and physical, it would definitely be very possible and easy for the Philippians to develop a name it and claim it understanding of God's provision. And Paul has previously in the letter already explained to them that Glorious riches in Christ Jesus are not made simply of the material and the physical realm. If you remember in chapter 3, he says the unbelievers are, they want to fill their bellies with earthly things. This life is not just about asking God for material and physical needs. There's more to it. something greater an earthly treasure and that's where the treasury of Christ will become sweeter if we can respond to believing the word of God it says the riches that are hidden in Christ Jesus are worth more than any earthly treasure can provide the question then is what riches, if it is, the riches that are in Christ Jesus, the glorious riches hidden in Christ Jesus, what are those? What are the riches in the treasury of Christ? Number number one, Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What Paul is saying to the Romans is God is rich in kindness and patience. He is a compassionate and gentle and kind-hearted God. 
how wonderful it, it, it truly is to know that, that even when we've been actively participating in sin, even as Christians, we cannot understand why God has not removed his affection from us. His word reminds us that he is not easily frustrated because he is rich in kindness and patience. One of the hardest, this is a confession, one of the hardest, my wife's probably cringing at this point, it's not that bad. I mean, it's bad, I mean, it's, just stop while you're ahead. One of the hardest parental responsibilities is not only to discipline your children and, and consistently discipline your children, but is to not do it in anger. And every time I've considered how I failed at that, which is more than I would like to count, I think about and I consider, I'm reminded of the fatherly love toward us. Even when we sin, it's impossible to fathom how he doesn't just discipline us in anger, but he is a kind and compassionate and a gentle God. He is rich in patience with us. Number two, Romans eleven thirty three, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. And the treasury of Christ's riches, the, the scriptures testify that his judgment and his ways are not even comprehensible. And yet the Proverbs say it's the glory of kings to search them out. It's the glory of kings to, to seek. It's, a, it's glorious for us to, to go in the depth of, of his chest and, and, and try to understand and comprehend the incomprehensible God. One of my favorite quotes of all time regarding the mystery of God's ways is by Octavius Winslow who said, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. Number three, Romans 9, 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The treasure chest of Christ is filled with mercy. If you're saved, Christian, your cup overflows with forgiveness. In Christ, God chose to withhold your punishment by making you into a vessel of his mercy in order to put you on display for his glory. He is rich in mercy. Ephesians 1, 7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
Not only does your cup overflow with mercy, but you're a trophy of God's grace according to his riches which overflow through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ has a value that nothing under heaven or on earth is able to afford. We can't even understand the grace of God until the Spirit of God circumcises our heart and gives us understanding. And the reason it's so hard to understand why God would forgive us for not earning his forgiveness or not trying to right any of our wrongs is because we realize we are sinful before a holy God and we deserve to be punished. Then how could a holy, perfect, pure God forgive sinners who deserve to be punished? It is impossible to understand until you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see that that's where the innocent man came to die for us. You can work the rest of your life doing the most righteous acts you can possibly imagine and it will be worthless before the eyes of God and worthless in comparison to the value of Jesus' blood. There's only one thing that can forgive sins and that's the blood of Jesus and before we go to face God those must be forgiven it's unmerited favor to have your sins forgiven number five Colossians 127 to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles non-Jews, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Gentiles, we've been adopted as sons, Ephesians 1, and grafted into God's people. And while that may seem stale to us, or not a big deal to us, it's still a mystery that God made those who did not seek him that he made them the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And it, here's the mystery. Uh, Jesus talks about, or Paul writes in Romans 9, picks up what Hosea said in Hosea 1. Paul says, As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. In her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. How can God call people who are sinful, defiled, his people when we didn't even want it? The Bible says he does it through the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.2. Paul says that the hearts may be encouraged, sorry, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now Paul, Paul tells the Colossians, Christ himself is glorious treasure. In learning the depths of God's mystery in Christ, 
He says right here in Colossians 2, that will express itself in many ways. It will encourage our hearts to, to seek Christ and, and know him fuller. It will unite the church as one, being knit together in love. When we seek Christ together, and it says it will reward us with the assurance that Christ is our salvation. Guilt for sin goes away when you remember that Christ died on the cross to cleanse you from it. Finally, Ephesians 1.18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It's a little bit of reverse there. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying that in the treasury of Christ is us. We are Christ's inheritance. In fact, in Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, we are his glorious inheritance. What makes us so glorious? Our sins have been washed away in the precious blood of Jesus. And now we inherit all the riches from the treasury of Christ, and he inherits us. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2, where he says, Ask, and I will give you the nations. And on the cross, Jesus says, Father, I want my inheritance. I will take my bride now. I love her, and I lay down my life for her. You are precious in his sight. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is among you. A warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing.
delights in you. He rejoices over you. He sings over you because the Lord has removed your punishment by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit and supply you richly from the depths of his treasury. Let us pray. God, what, who are you that you would look upon a race that you created who completely rejected you, were defiled by their sin, turned away from you, and as your word says, didn't even want you nor seek you or sought you. And you still removed our punishment. You still sent the Son to die for our sins. And you sing over us. You delight in us. And that is hard to imagine. But you tell us that it's true, and your word is true, and you are faithful to bring every promise that you have told your people. And God, it starts with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you have told us that those who respond by repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, will be saved and receive the inheritance of your Son. God, I pray that we would respond to that in faith. Amen.